Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. The noise you can hear in the background is the noise of business being done in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. And the next voice that you'll hear is Alex Davis. Hello, Alex. Hiya. And as always, we are also joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. Uh, Right, gents. Last time we spoke, there was no deal. Two days later, there is a deal. Did we win? Did we lose? Is it stalemate? How's the land like? Um... I think broadly, uh, it, it's, we, we've gone through before what we expected to happen, and I think we were quite, we did quite well in our predictions um, yeah. as, yeah. as things go. Um, in that we've we've essentially capitulated quite a lot. Um, the EU has given some uh, some wiggle room on matters of citizens' rights and things like that. But yes, we we have a joint uh, what's it, a joint statement, is mm, it? it a, is. a joint yeah. statement, yeah, of uh, concluding the first phase of talks, which means now. It goes to the European Council uh, on the 14th and 15th at the Council Summit, yep. and it's up for them to give the go-ahead for talks to move on to the next phase, which will be on matters of, first of all, transition and withdrawal, and after that, trade. Mm. So, what we've got so far, is this a case as, more or less, as you were? What's, what, what has changed? Um, I think what... We, we, we spoke in the last podcast about the tricky situation that May was in with trying to get this deal done. And I think, in truth, uh, all that's happened is that many of the major problems that they were facing, we were talking about last week, have simply been kicked down the road um, and will still have to be dealt with at a later date. And there's still various stakeholders who are wanting various different things and are unhappy with this agreement for various different reasons. And at some point, uh, there is going to have to be a reconciliation and May's going to have to deal with some of these groups. So some of the big problems, particularly around how do we get around the Irish border problem, you know, how do we, there is this phrase which MPs are throwing back and forth between each other, regulatory alignment, you know, which which seems to have no real meaning set in stone. Um, But yeah, it's the question of how do we remain aligned to the EU essentially in order to avoid a hard border in Ireland? whilst also achieving this kind of regulatory divergence that all the hard Brexiteers want. 
Uh, it's still a question which hasn't been solved in the, the joint statement um, and will have to be dealt with at a later date. Um, and it, it's, I think I'm broadly, broadly happy with the fact that we've got this agreement, but some of the comments that we've seen in the recent days have uh, perhaps made the other side not quite so uh, not quite so confident that this is what they were expecting no absolutely the other side have been the Brexiteers just to be clear no the other side have been the EU it's in the EU oh right yeah. okay. um, but no, I mean I think the the joint statement as it was as it's been drafted is is actually a kind of a, a, a very typical EU bureaucratic politician's fudge it allows both sides to claim some aspects of victory we explored this I think not in the last podcast but the one before well, actually the EU is perfectly happy to help the tone if that helps the UK to get into a position it needs to be in and so there's been a bit of massaging on that as like I said the, the, UK, the EU has given up quite a bit of some of the some of its asks around citizens rights um, and we've got a we've got a, a, a decent agreement there the bill was they said a it isn't a bill we talked about this last time this is what we would have paid anyway that was always going to be what the EU said it was going to be we were never going to make any any progress there Northern Ireland has been as Alex said it's a can that's been kicked down the road and we are we've yet to fall over it essentially that's gonna that's got to happen at the next stage but I think yeah both sides can claim victory so far um, but unfortunately, uh, yeah, David Davis made made some uh, made some errors on the Andrew Marshall on Sunday morning, which the EU is now kicking back against. Now, tell me about these errors because there's quite a lot of politicians who have gone off script since this deal was signed, almost as if they don't know what deal was signed. Yes, I think uh, what David Davis said on the Marshall. I, th- I think what David Davis seems to be doing at the minute is saying whatever needs to be said to the specific audience he's trying to please at the time. So, following the news that the deal, the, the, well, the, the deal was done and the joint statement was, was completed, um, many hard Brexiteers got very, very concerned at this idea that we were uh, basically, in, in the event of no deal or, or no other arrangement which would maintain the, the uh, invisible border in Ireland, that we would choose to maintain regulatory alignment in order to avoid that problem. Uh, and for many hard Brexiteers, this was kind of a sign that we were putting a nail in the hard Brexit coffin, uh, particularly in the no-deal coffin, and we were kind of solidifying the idea that we were going down a soft Brexit route, and so many of them were quite worried about this. And so what David Davis said was that the joint statement was more a statement of intent than anything else, and it isn't legally enforceable, which was... In hindsight, I think even he will agree a, pr- a pretty stupid thing to say um, at this point where you know both sides are meant to have had, a, had an agreement. It's still got to be ratified by the European Council. They've still got to give us permission to move on to the next phase of talks. For him to then go on and say, you know, after eight months of trying to figure this out, we've come up with this joint statement, but you know what, if things don't quite go that way, we can just tear it all up anyway, probably isn't what the other side wanted to hear. And I think some of the things which uh, Guy Verhofstadt, the, what's his title? President President of the European Parliament. Yeah, Yeah. some of the things which he's said today has basically been, um, you know, slapping David Davis on the wrist saying, you can't really do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. So essentially they've taken, so all the papers have been drafted really as we speak for uh, for the European Council, which sits later this week. Week. One of the items on the agenda is: Does the whilst the European Commission has now formally recommended to the Council that sufficient progress has been made, um, it's up to the Council to decide that. But there's now an amendment been tabled to that by Giefer Hofstadt, which basically says it's only we only we would only recommend you moving on once the UK statement is enforced into UK law. Yes, so that's one of the things I was thinking about actually, which is. Has the Dave Davis 
gaffe, in effect, forced people or forced or going to force the UK to codify this into law before anything continues? I think um, I'm not sure it would have happened anyway. Um, in the sense that I think they were happy just to try and keep things moving. The problem, you know, we hear this phrase both from Giffa Hofstadt in his statement today. We've heard it from Barnier throughout the entire process is this concept that trust must be built between the two sides, yes. that we can both believe what the other is saying. And of course, a huge challenge for the UK position, if it, well, the whole point is there isn't a UK position, this is the problem. The whole challenge is, is you have May, Davis, Fox, um, Hammond, and basically everyone else in Parliament talking a different story about what Brexit is, what it might be, why we're doing it, what we want to achieve, what kind of future relationship we want. Um, and of course that is, you know, we have formal negotiations going on, but that's it. as you said with David Davies, he seems to just want to please whoever he's talking to. It's almost yeah. like they all talk as if the Europeans aren't listening. Yes. So we've just gone through this formal deal, you know, May flew over in the middle of the night, we finally got it over the line, and then the next thing the Europeans see is a variety of English cabinet politicians saying the opposite or different things to what is in the agreement. So... How do you have trust in your negotiating partner is kind of their, their question, really. I wonder if they're getting it wrong, not necessarily because they're you know, acting in bad faith or they've got their own message to put out, although undoubtedly yeah, some of that will be going on, whether just the whole vastness and the complexity of it leads, leads to gaps which politicians are not particularly good at grasping. That's, I think that's... Yeah. Very accurate on the whole. <laughs> there, was, there was a big conversation going around about after David Davis's comments about whether the deal was legally binding or not. And I think there were some, some uh, law commentators on Twitter saying that essentially that question is a bit of a red herring because it's, it's not legally binding in the sense that the EU could take us to court and you know, get something back because of this. It, it's not legally binding in that sense, but it is a, a political agreement. And it was always intended that it would be enforced. Um, and it's, it, again, it's this whole thing about trust. So the fact that it's not legally binding um, isn't really the matter. It's about the fact that we built this trust with the EU and we, we, we had come to this conclusion together. It is a joint statement. And then for us to kind of then go say, well, you know, if things don't go exactly in the way that we want them to later on, we can just do, do something differently anyway, um, is what's kind of... Uh, force them to respond with this, this you know maybe we should enshrine this into law yeah this, this goes back to a point we talked about on, I think on the last podcast which was one of the government's major errors since the very very beginning uh, of all this was is treating an extremely complex problem as if it were simple yes uh, and it's, a, it's handled it very very bluntly because it really doesn't it shows every day that it doesn't understand the complexities and the nuances um, in all of this and this just becomes really clear in all this so you've had we've also had in the last few days Theresa May saying well you know we've agreed the Brexit bill as part of all that but actually if we don't get a free trade deal we wouldn't pay it you know we'd walk away we're not bound it's like well again technically speaking this agreement doesn't bind you to it but these are contractual play payments the government has signed up to so if you're going to walk away from them that is a sovereign default now, at a time when the UK is trying to be brave and say we're going to be global Britain, we're going to re-establish ourselves as an independent nation on the global stage, we want to start talking serious trade deals with hundreds and hundreds of countries, all the rest of the world looks back and sees, here's a country which doesn't know what it wants, it says one thing and does another, it's openly saying that if we don't get what we want out of this, we'll go for a unilateral sovereign default. It's it's not the way to be portraying a nation that actually now needs to start entering into into high-level agreements, the sort of which it has not done in nearly five decades. So I have a thought on this. Um, traditionally, or not traditionally, but 
our conventional thought so far is that the EU has the whip hand over the UK from a negotiating point of view because the EU is this all powerful body which doesn't have voters to, voters to, voters to answer to and they're also rule bound so we saw as soon as Task Force 50 was set up these are the rules you can't stray outside the rules it's very yep. much interpretation on the other hand we've got the UK which has got all its politicking and, poli and politicians are in charge of Brexit rather than civil servants and I wonder if this might be one of those situations where we don't appreciate it yet, but the advantage might actually turn into, U into the UK's hand, because the UK can be incredibly flexible. Um, whereas the EU might ask the UK to put something into law, well, UK politicians are all powerful. They've, they've got much more flexibility than the, e than the EU bureaucrats. And I wonder if the flexibility which has been seen as a downside to the UK negotiating position is actually going to be seen as a bit of an upside going forward? I don't think so. No. Uh, <laughs> as, as a really short answer. Um, no, because it's, it's this challenge that the EU has been Essentially, I mean, the biggest difference I think between the EU side. You're right. The EU is a is a big bureaucratic body. It's you know it is the world leader in international trade negotiations, international regulation development. Um, it knew what it wanted from the start. It knew what its red lines were. It hasn't moved from any of those. Now again, I think in the early stages, the UK would have done better out of all this if it have accepted that and understood that actually. Because the problem is, it's not that the UK is going to have to give and it can give because it's flexible because it's not hidebound to any of those kind of things but it can also take I mean, that, that, it can that, also that take the huge challenge it's got is it's spent the last 18 months two years saying that it's going to go and do options A through Z when A it can't do most of those there was no way on earth the EU was ever going to allow half, at least half of those um, and as we've seen actually with Brexit Bill and with a big chunk of citizens' rights and with the issue of the Northern Ireland border, what the EU stated out to be actually just clear, a clear statement of international law as it currently stands is how things will work out. Um, and so it's, I think the challenge on the, on the, on the British side is, is one of... It's just been... We've, we've managed expectations badly. We promised... The population asked for a moon on a stick... The politicians offered each one of them an individual moon on an individual <laughs> stick. Or sometimes, um, two, uh, sometimes two or three moons. moons, yeah. And all of a sudden, at some point, Theresa May and the government are going to have to turn around and say, Do you know what, there's only one moon and there aren't any sticks. And actually, that's, but that's how it was always going to be. And this is where you know, political leadership comes in, in terms of managing what's actually doable. Do you think the Brexiteers have been a bit naive? I don't mean in the negotiating position, because we, I think we know the answer to that. But in terms of criticising and attacking the idea of a soft Brexit, because the whole thing is a process. I mean, to think that they could have a hard Brexit in two years is ludicrous. To think they have one in ten years seems to be perfectly reasonable. They should be getting, getting behind this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We've been saying that, saying that right from the start, yeah. that Brexit's going to take ten years, and that's the best way to do it, that's the sensible way to do it. To try and do it in anything less is, um, you know, is... Well, it's just setting you up for failure, isn't it? Yeah. It's not going to work. It's unforced errors, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's what, that is what's constantly coming out of this thing. And I think, in, in terms of the joint statement, I, th I think it's, it's a fudge to such an extent that I think many of our MPs haven't quite, didn't quite realise what we had signed up to, which I find particularly worrying. Um, I mean, you mentioned before, there's still some, many people saying that, you know, if we don't like the uh, arrangements that we make on trade, if we don't like the free trade deal we can still walk, walk away and not pay anything but that's not true because uh, there is a line in the joint statement that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed 
But in terms of the phase one joint statement, that's based on only on the Article 50 withdrawal bill, not on the final trade deal. And I think there's basic agreement now that there is no chance whatsoever of us agreeing the free trade deal um, until we've actually left the EU. Um, and so the next thing that we're going to be talking about in phase two is the withdrawal arrangements and the status quo transition that we're after. Yeah. Um, and if we agree those things, then that counts as everything is agreed. And so what I said in the phase one joint statement um, you know, is, is what, we've, we, what we've agreed. And I think one of the particularly worrying things and something which I think is perhaps going to cause a bit of uproar later on is that that implies to me that we could be paying the bill before we started to talk, talk about the free trade deal. Oh, certainly, absolutely. Because I mean, one of the things that came out of the discussions is, and kind of as we expect it to be, we know now that the UK has net liabilities to the EU of 40 billion quid, there or thereabouts. Uh, gross liabilities about 100 billion net off with all the rest of the assets we will pay those as they fall due there is not going to be an invoice that lands on the treasury's desk in the next few years so part of that is so about half of that will be our normal budgetary contributions um, to the eu spending budget of which we are a recipient until march 2019 and clearly it looks like you know aspects of horizon 2020 and other problems we're going to be in so we're going to be receiving funds back so we pay those in as we pay them now the longer-term liabilities around capital investment, around new projects, around um, EU, UK, EU civil service pensions, things like that, we pay them as they fall due. So we will be paying this out. Not only will we still be paying it out on the 1st of April 2019, we'll still be paying it out in 2059. Yeah, exactly. So as, you, as I said, half this bill will be paid before we've left, uh, and certainly before the end of the transition period. And, and, and another thing that this means is that once that withdrawal arrangement and the transition period is agreed, and the way that things are going currently, it's going to be a status quo transition where we are subjected to every commitment that uh, an EU member would be, but without our veto, without our vote, without our say at the table. Um, I mean, that's what we've asked for. And once that is agreed, all of a sudden this joint statement comes basically comes into being enforceable. And at which point we have made the commitment then to maintain the invisible border in Ireland. So once we've agreed this transition period, if then we don't like the terms of the free trade agreement, at that point, as far as I understand it, we can, we can no longer have the option of doing no deal. And we still have to maintain the invisible uh, border in Ireland, which means we have to maintain regulatory harmonisation. Which means, for all intents and purposes, we need to kind of stay in the single market and the customs union. Well, we will, we will be in the single market in all but name. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Hmm. And walking away from that would be a breach of international treaty. Uh, so... Um, where was going to go uh, next to this? Now, in a way, do you think everything which has been agreed so far is kind of a bit of a phony one? Because, I mean, when you think about the referendum, which one of these issues featured lot, um, uh, featured heavily in in any of the debates? Broadly, pretty much none of them. Not <laughs> one of them. In reality, and this has always been the problem. So we've yeah. got phase one out of the way, just. Do you expect fireworks then for, for phase two? Because this is when it's actually going to count as things which are important to people and the overall national debate when it happened. I, th- I think there's some huge problems lined up. And again, I think this is, this is entirely of our own politicians making. Um, and I've, I've been sort of very vocally critical of, uh, of Theresa May and her red lines. I think increasingly, if you sort of read some of the books coming out now, it's clear that she was probably it's probably I've forgotten his name now Nick her, her, Nick Timothy pr- Nick Timothy it's yes. probably him that sits behind the problems we now see 
and, I, and it's him that's essentially that essentially struck these incredibly well a very very tough red lines they came from nowhere don't forget the man the mandate in the referendum was nothing more than leave the EU you know if people want to play what the mandate is all we know is we want to go some people say well it you know that meant leaving the single market it meant leaving the customs union it meant restricting migration it went depending on who you spoke to and which campaign you listened to you will have heard all and none of the above so there's no clarity in any of that um other than, I guess, we know historically the UK population has always had a pretty tense relationship with the EU and it doesn't particularly like the political ambitions, but it actually rather likes the economic and the trade stuff. Yeah. So we don't know any more. So all of this has to hit a brick wall at some point. So in many ways, like we've, you know, don't forget, we've seen from, from David Davis, from Redwood, from Fox, from all of those kind of hard Brexiteers, the entirety of the last 18 months has been saying, has been the EU saying, we think you owe us about 40 or 50 billion quid, and us saying, we don't owe you a penny legally, you owe us 40 or 50 billion quid, we don't, you know, what was it, Boris Johnson said, you, they can go and whistle, yep. the EU saying, you owe us 40 or 50 billion quid, etc, 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 end point, we pay 40 billion quid. I mean, it's, and th- there's some stuff here that's immovable, so this challenge around, I mean, I think the really big one, I, I suspect when we get there, will be, we'll still be in the single market post 2019 that's guaranteed essentially because this can't work out in, in, in any other way so there'll be a huge the, the, you know, the, the far right Brexit tears on the migration stuff will we'll throw the toys out of the pram there and then the big one is the Irish border um, is you know we've committed they said we have committed to a way Alex said earlier you know, the default position in this agreement now is to all intents and purposes the UK remains a member of the single market and customs union in all but name there'll be a fudge to make all that happen and make it not look like that but that will be the outcome because it cannot be any other way the UK government and the EU absolutely publicly committed it's there in black and white there will be no infrastructure at all on the border which means we are in the single market and customs union there is no possible other way of doing that's it that's a really good yeah I mean that's kind of what I thought when I heard about the uh, the frictionless, the open, the invisible, whatever the border is now going to call it. It can't be done. That's it. And, it's, and you know, politicians are wading into this and talking about the wrong terminology. So everyone's saying we've got to remain in the customs union to, to make the border visible. It's not the customs union which makes the border invisible. Mm. It's common regulation. Well, what about freedom of movement? All that sort of, no, freedom of movement is not about getting across a border without showing a passport. That's what Schengen does. And yep. neither Ireland nor the UK are members of Schengen. Um, that's about rights to settle. Um, it's a different thing. So the problem is we've still got... You know, this was forgivable. Actually, it wasn't forgivable the day after the referendum. It was forgivable at the time of the Bloomberg speech that our politicians had basically zero knowledge about any of this term. Halfway through the Article 50 process, it is completely unforgivable. That it appears that not one of our politicians knows how to use these words mm. and actually knows what the, what the meaning of these terms is. That's really unforgivable. Because it's the whole thing, I think it talked in a very early episode... You know, they, they say we want Parliament to have a meaningful vote. Parliament can't have a meaningful vote because Parliament has shown repeatedly it doesn't know what it's talking about. So you can have a vote to stay or go or like the agreement or not like it. Nobody in the House of Commons, certainly we've yet to see the, what the Lords will, um, will do to the uh, withdrawal bill when it hits there. No one in the Commons can do this. Um, does the invisible border kind of tell us exactly what the trade deal will be? We don't really need to know much more about it, do we? we they, both sides sit down, they, they start to talk about trade, and someone says, oh, what about the border? OK, um, as you were. Well, well, I think this is another problem, is that a, a free trade deal won't allow for an invisible border. It can't do, can it? No, no, free trade deals don't. 
there was a lovely phrase, I'll, sorry Alex, to interrupt, but someone said, you, the distance between WTO terms and a free trade agreement is probably only 5% of the difference between a comprehensive free trade agreement and single market and customs union. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The distance is immeasurably different. FTA is just a bolt-on to WTO terms. It's not anything revolutionary. Yeah, so uh, we can use the analogy of, of David Davis saying that we would, I mean, an, another brilliant promise from David Davis, that we would sign a CETA++ deal within minutes after leaving the EU in 2019. Okay. Um, and so the the whole debate is now starting to be framed uh, as in a, a fight between the CETA route and something like the Norway route. And really what it comes down to is this idea of regulatory uh, alignment or regulatory divergence. So do we want to continue to align ourselves as much as possible to the EU or do we want to diverge and perhaps align ourselves towards something more like the USA or Canada? And it's two completely different routes and you can't really do both at the same time. Um, and so David Davis is saying that we can do this Canada-style um, CETA++ deal where we can take the CETA agreement and bolt on loads of new things you know, which allow for better trade and services and things like that. But it's simply not possible. I mean, as Christian just said, a free trade agreement does nothing to allow an invisible border. The key element that you need for an invisible border is total regulatory harmonisation uh, of, of both laws and the mechanisms by which you enforce those laws. CETA doesn't do any of that, and one of the big things that's missing from CETA is uh, much in terms of improving uh, trade terms uh, of services. Now, we know that the single market isn't brilliant in terms of services trade, but one of the key things that these big modern FTAs include is most favoured nation clauses, and I think, we've, I think we've touched upon these before. We have, but just, just remind us. So... Actually, basic what an MFN what MFN concept is first probably yeah. so most favoured uh, oh god I think you've put me on the spot there so, <laughs> so once we leave the EU we're going to become essentially a third country uh, in, in, yeah. from, from the EU's perspective um, but because of our status as, as a, a big trading country we are subjected to WTO most favoured nation rules okay. which it, it means that we cannot give trade concessions to one country without also giving them to another country. So we can't p- play favourites, basically. Right. I, I think that's it. No, that's that's it. putting it in a nutshell. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so yeah, if whatever your best, you can't. We can't say we're not going to have any tariffs with the EU, but we will levy them on everywhere else. You can't. We can't do that unilaterally. The only way you can do that is through a WTO registered free trade agreement. Yes. Which has to take into account the major, the substantial majority of trade flows between those two blocks. So also, when David Davis has said, oh, we, you know, we'll exempt tariffs on cars from Germany, you can't, A, you can't do anything from Germany, because Germany's part of the EU Customs Union and Common Commercial Policy. B, you cannot do it on just cars. It's not allowed under international law. That's not something either the UK or the EU has the power to deliver. Yeah, so, so the, the, the two most recent big FTAs that the EU did were, with obviously, with Canada, the CETA deal, yep. and also with uh, South Korea. Um, and both of these deals have... MFN, uh, Most Favoured Nation Clauses, on them in terms of services, which mean that if the EU were to do a free trade agreement with us that gave considerably more um, uh, concessions on, on trade and services than did the CETA or the South Korea deal, then those two deals would then have to be readjusted to give Canada and South Korea the same, same access. Yeah. Got you. And another interesting point to make on that is that there are get-out clauses in those MFN clauses which allow countries like Switzerland and Norway to do their own trade deals which better those terms through a body like EFTA. So, 
why couldn't Norway? Why isn't Norway affected by most favoured nation status when it does its own trade treaties? Um, essentially, because written into the well, first first of all, not all the free trade deals have MFN clauses, yeah. and the MFN clauses don't apply to every part of the trade deal. So CETA and the South Korea one in particular have MFN clauses on services. But there is an exemption for uh, countries like Switzerland and Norway who are doing their own free trade deals uh, through the free trade body EFTA. So EFTA can go and negotiate a free trade deal which does more on services than the CETA or the South Korea deal will. And those two, two deals do not have to be readjusted if Norway or Switzerland wanted to do so. Right. So, I mean, again, we're getting brought back to this whole EEA EFTA. Um, and and the, two, the two things are becoming separate now. Um, we're, we're not talking so much in terms of the Norway option. People are talking about the EEA as a, as a, a route to keeping us in the single market. The conversation around us staying in EFTA seems to have died down. Um, EFTA is being seen as a bit of a, a bolt-on option. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think me and Christian would probably agree that it's a good a good bolt-on option. Yeah, it, 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 it gives you maximum flexibility. And the thing is, the challenges that some people make about you know having rules imposed, we've, we've discussed before that that's not entirely true. There's an aspect of truth to it, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not entirely true. So it, it, it's reasonable for people to say it's, a, you know, it's not an ideal option. It's, it's not in that sense. But the point is for us is it's considerably more ideal than the route the government is currently taking. That's the, that's so the point. So just as a thought experiment here, just so I understand... We get our trade deal, and it basically is exactly the same as what we currently have. I mean, we don't make the laws, uh, we don't make the rules anymore, but for, you know, for all sense of purposes, it's the same thing. If we stop manufacturing widgets to standard A and then start manufacturing standard B outside the rules of the, of the EU, what happens? Presumably, we get taken to a court somewhere. Um, it would depend what was in the agreement as to as to how that's enforced, but it would certainly spring border checks. Mm. Uh, immediately, because essentially there's now a risk of non-EU standard, standard products product. entering the market. Yeah. So the, what would they do in relation to Northern Ireland? You couldn't, you couldn't, they couldn't just wheel out some, out some borders. I mean, it's going to have to be... Well, the, 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 see, this is the whole challenge, you see, where we have, and again, we have John Redwood on his usual idiot box over the weekend, um, saying that, you know, it's why would the EU want to put any borders up? The EU will be required under international law, its current legal obligations and WTO rules to erect that border. But again, it's, it's, you know, if once once essentially you've got the border which is no longer in the customs union, this is the, this is you know, the issue here. The regulation is not the customs; the single market. Essentially, it has to erect a border. It has to protect its own legal integrity, because otherwise, it's a it's a route for smuggling. And then once once there's substantial the risk of substantial goods coming in to the single market, essentially, it's not about. The EU doesn't want to see it because it reduces the integrity. Other nations don't want to see it because we'll say, hang on, if it's easier for Ireland, if it's easier for the UK to smuggle goods without due to the appropriate checks into the UK than it is the US, for example, then the EU is giving preferential, essentially giving preferential treatment. Um, and you would be in trade dispute at a WTO level between the US and the EU. I, I, you know, I mean, look, don't, don't get me wrong, I don't want to see an international trade dispute, but I, I would love to see this in action just to see actually what, what, what everyone did. Because yeah. you, you know, you basically you've got the conflict between the Irish really not wanting a border. You know, That's it. I mean, this is all the thing. These, these things are sort of irresolvable because they, they just, the, 
they're mutually exclusive. The problem is the asks are mutually exclusive. Now, from a Chamber point of view, have you had any feedback from your members? Are they uh, happy with this? Are they, you know, is, is there any positive, negative feedback? Or they just simply not care? Are they waiting for the big stuff? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say, I'd, I'd say the latter. I wouldn't say they don't care, but it's the big stuff. Because essentially, this is a, the, the agreement last week was a big political statement, but actually, practically nothing has changed. Um, so, you know, lots of people were saying, you know, in fact, the government was tweeting heavily saying, look, we've now guaranteed citizens' rights. At the same time as David Davis is saying, well, actually, to be honest, we can tear this up whenever we like. So, actually, citizens' rights are not yet guaranteed. Mm. The, the, the two sides have reached an agreement to implement this, providing stage two is agreed. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, there, is still, there is still no certainty over, over citizens' position. There is still no certainty about what the world will look like for UK businesses on the 29th of March, 2019. We know no more. We know it's less likely that it's going to be a horrendous outcome mm-hmm. because essentially we've committed to you know, the default position. Our default fallback, theoretically now, is essentially single market and customs union membership. Um, but we don't have confirmation of that. Yes. That's the thing. So until there's something black and white which says at midnight on the 29th of March 2019, the world will look like this, and the this is identical to what it looked like now, business will not relax. So what is the next step for Brexit? The twenty, the twenty-seven are meeting to, to to ratify this, and then we're going to start free trade. No, we're going to start transition talks. We're going to start transition meeting. talks. That's the next bit, Alex. I think. Yes. So uh, it's the EU Council summit on the fourteenth and fifteenth. This week, yeah, Friday. Thursday, Friday. Yeah, this yeah, week, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, uh, where the council will hopefully give us permission to move on to the next phase of talks. Um, a general misconception is that we will quickly be moving on to the matters of trade, but we won't be. We'll mostly be talking about what happens on March 2019. How do we get this status quo transition? What does that look like? Um, only once that is sorted will we start to move on to talk about what the future trading arrangement will look like. We can't sign any of that off or do any deals in that respect until we've actually left. Yeah, so, and, and this is really hard. The transition is hard. Because we're asking for something very... Well, I mean, from my point of view, I would say we're asking for something very, very odd. We're saying we want to stay in with all of the obligations but take away all the benefits of representation. That's actually the UK's position. We continue to abide by all the rules, but we walk away from the tables where we can influence them. That's a very, so we're, volunt- we're voluntarily putting ourselves in what they might call the EA position. It's also, it's also a completely unprecedented position. It's unprecedented legally, and there are and, big questions yes. about how, how achievable this is. Writing the legal text which allows us to basically be a member of the EU without being a member of the EU is, is going to be something which no one has ever thought No one has ever done, because um, presumably this will include all of the um, third country trade deals the EU already has as part of its common commercial policy. Um, the question for me around the, how the EU handles this is it has to somehow square the circle of offering a third country full-blown single market customs union and common commercial policy access and not offering it to the rest. That is a breach of MFN that we yes. just talked about. Um, unless it's a full comprehensive deal. Um, so th- there's going to have to be there's some serious legal jiggery. Now, you know, if anyone can make it work, it's the EU. But there's going to have to be some very crafty obfuscation about how you actually pull this off. Because in many ways, the easiest way of, di- of doing what we're trying to do is to say, we just extend Article 50, we leave in 2021 rather than 2019. Um, except, unfortunately, it still doesn't get you around the point that we cannot begin trade talks with the EU until we've left. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, from... I guess what I'll term a gradual Brexiteer point of view. 
you're going to have to go through a stage of taking rules and not making rules until you can get to that stage of actually you know, what they really want. That's it. And I think you talked earlier about fireworks. I mean, I think one of the, I mean, the EU mostly new. EU laws and regs move pretty slowly by the nature of the organisation, but it's plausible that after we leave and we move into the transition period, the EU starts to enact new laws and regulations which will need to hit the statute books before the end of the transition period. And I can see a huge fireworks on the Brexit side. When essentially, when the UK, when the UK government will be obliged to, because don't forget, we'll have the the current plan is we'll have the EU withdrawal bill on statute before March 2019. In fact, it has to be or else chaos really will reign. Um, although maybe it won't, because if we are, that might get handled by the EU legislative side rather than rather than our own. Uh, but apparently, if we're repealing the European Communities Act, then we remove all the framework which allows that to happen. Um, is that during that transition period, new laws and regulations will appear, which means we'll have to keep transposing those over manually uh, as they come. And you can just see some Brexiteers having, doing a bit of a nut, saying, I thought we'd left, why are we still having to implement all of this? Well, this is going to go on for the next ten years now. Yeah. This is, this, this is, this is the new world. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's quite exciting. Uh, right, anyone want to add anything else? Anything that you want to... I think that's probably the substantive stuff for now. I mean, I think it's real. Oh, I just one last uh, point, point of order. Yes, we're going to do the um, do the transi- transition period. We spoke about that. Are there any other bits and pieces that, I've com- that, that we've completely overlooked? So in the first place, we have citizens' rights and uh, the, the border, so on and so forth. Is it simply just just a tra- transition phase at the moment? It's transition phase first, um, and it'll be. I mean, don't forget. First of all, we need the the EU. The European Commission has not yet formally agreed to the concept of the transition. Uh, it's not yet clear whether that will pop out of this council or whether we need to wait for the next one. Uh, I think the recommendations are we move to talk to transition. Um, the Commission has certainly not decided that it wants that it's ready to talk about future trade, and the expectations are it's going to be the March or the April um, European Council summit before. Uh, in fact, that is actually the next one after this. So we're some way away from talking about all that. Um, I think the, the the one to watch is probably the Irish border stuff as that rattles on because the Ireland is Ireland is quite correctly extremely worried about this. Mm. Um, it, the Ireland is the only country in the EU which would do worse out of a bad Brexit than the UK, quite substantially worse than the UK. Uh, primarily because even though it's whilst you know bulk of it, the majority of its trade actually is with the UK itself. Pretty much all of the trade to the rest of the EU27 transits the UK. Um, so it's got some big issues there because at the moment most of its trade comes in through through Holyhead, Stranraer, um, and then down and out through Dover. Uh, so it's got all of that side to handle. Um, and what is clear is the EU will not um, will not rush Ireland. If Ireland's not happy, the EU will will stay in lockjack. Um, you, then, of course, you've got the domestic political pressure of Theresa May and the DUP, because the DUP say they want everyone out of the single market and the customs union, that the integrity of the UK single market should not be undermined. Um, but those things, are, again, you know, and the border must be kept open. All of those are mutually incompatible. Yep. Um, and you know, and I think, for the government's point of view, it's still got in this idea that you know if some technical solution cannot be found in an FTA to reduce the border well the truth is we know the answer to that question there is no solution which will make that border go away in an FTA agreement so it needs to square the circle and I just wonder 
how quickly of the coming negotiations that brick wall will, will become apparent in and UK politics. Another thing which is going to have to be discussed, I, I think I'm correct in this, in that the amendment to the withdrawal bill on the parliamentary vote on the final deal mm-hmm. is being voted upon tomorrow. It is, yes, it's back um, in the House this week. So there's going to be some news about that coming tomorrow, and in, in my eyes I still have no idea what that means or what they will be voting on. No, it's there's questionable some, yeah. Yeah, if it has any meaning at all. There seems to be this impression that it's going to be a vote on the final deal, but if that vote's going to happen before March 2019, we know that it can't include the free trade agreement. And so is that vote just going to be on the terms of the transition uh, deal? You know, it, it's, it's very hard to work out yeah. what that vote's going to be for, what it could achieve, whether it's going to be meaningful... Whether Parliament, you know, even has the expertise to give it a good go, yeah. it's, it's not, none of that is particularly clear in my head. And also, there was uh, an interesting quote I saw from from Jeremy Corbyn um, today. After last week, we spoke about the fact that it seemed as if Keir Starmer was softening up uh, Labour's Brexit position. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Jeremy Corbyn has said that uh, they've done a good job of capturing some of the Remain and some of the Leave votes. And at this point, they don't want to strengthen up their Brexit position at all uh, in case they alienate a particular he group. Said that. Yeah, um, so it, it seems as if Labour is still going to you know, play the quiet game and, and stay away from things as much as possible and just let the Tories destroy themselves. That seems to be their current. Which, which actually, from a sheer political point of view, is probably the right card to play. Um, I disagree. I disagree strongly, actually. I think people have been quite surprised that we managed... Because, no, no, from a very... From a bystander's point of view, the whole Brexit thing looks like a mess. You've got the Brexiteers making a hell of a noise that it's not the Brexit that we wanted. You've got the Remainers saying, you know, we're all going to die suddenly uh, next March. And, you know, everyone in between is saying, you know, like we have today, that David Davis doesn't have a clue. And that all kind of bears out. Yet somehow, the... They've managed to conclude the first round, the first round of talks, and I have a feeling that if they manage to conclude the second round and actually exit the EU without any blood being spilt, that's going to be a massive, massive coup. And if Labour haven't addressed that, what good arguments of why what they've done is wrong or right or an alternative, it's going to backfire enormously. I, I think there's, I think there's a longer term game. Um, so the challenge is what we will know. You know, what we'll know presumably by you know end of 2018, early 2019, is we'll have a transition period agreed. Mm. We know that from the EU's point of view, there are two things that that must be. Number one is it's standstill. Mm. They've said it's standstill or act. So there, there's no picking and choosing. It's the whole okay, and it will be time limited. So the agreement signed will say you you exit the, your standstill position. Probably in in twi- either end of twenty to end of calendar year twenty twenty, which is their budgeting cycle, uh, or March twenty twenty one. They the problem you've got is you then have we then have two years to negotiate the future mm. agreement. In this way, I've some of the sort of the the hard Brexiteers that I've sort of challenged and said they're wrong. Again, it's one of those great aspects where they're they're wrong but partially right. Could. How easy would it be for the UK and the EU to agree a zero-tariff FTA on goods? Actually, really straightforward. The problem is that's nowhere near enough. Mm. That will be devastating. If not, not inside the customs union, outside of single market regulatory alignment, outside of phytosanitary and agriculture stuff, that will be catastrophic. It's not sufficient. But that's, prob- but that's your kind of best-case default scenario. So the challenge for Labour, of course, is Labour's position, the position of its members and its parliamentary party is more split over this. 
than any of the other parties. It's got a chunk of it. It's core. It's oh, it's where its old core fashion, old fashioned core membership is heavily pro Brexit. Mm. Uh, its parliamentary party is heavily Remain in in sort of in totality. Actually, don't leave at all. Never mind about what it is um, you want to do. But actually, a huge chunk of the pro Leave side of Labour is is also trying to square it with the unions, who actually quite like the employment regulation and all of that kind of side of the EU. So there's a horrible, horrible tension. So the problem is, as soon as they come out on one side or the other, they sort of skewer everything. Where actually, if you can get if you can get to the point where look, the only default outcome now is chaos. We are now going to have to take you down this path to, to solve the short term. That might give them a, uh, a political advantage. I guess all the things that you're talking about there are talking to their existing membership. And that's what they, I mean, that's what they do anyway. I mean, they're, they're in a state of civil, states, a very quiet state of civil war, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. it, yep. it is there. Talking to the, the population as a whole, if they, if, and it's a big if, the Tory party managed to somehow get for instance a soft Brexit where everything looks the same as it did before the vote, I actually think, think they do okay. Yeah, we shall have to see it's, I think the, the big one for me is we remember we've got, we had this huge deadline of, of March 2019 by which we had to do something we expect the next two, three, four months will bring forward the transition agreement all that does is kick the cliff edge to 2021. It doesn't. Yeah. S- nothing else has been solved. All you've done is put it mm. off. All of the same problems still exist. Yeah. Mm. yeah I, I, all it does is buy time. It yeah, doesn't I, provide a solution. I just like the um, the the visuals of uh, well, Theresa May trying to sort things out in Brussels and Jeremy Corbyn going to a Friends of Cuba rally, and then you think, <laughs> who would have? You know, who, who is yeah. fit? Who is fit? The level pegging in the polls. I just, yeah. I just, Theresa, ahead within yeah. a margin of error. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I just want to point out that was not a direct quote from Jeremy Corbyn. It was what the Guardian inferred from talking to his team. I was going to say ah, it, it didn't sound like a very Jeremy Corbyn quote. Yeah, I was, I was, question, I was questioning that. I was just saying. I, I knew that I'd seen it somewhere. Um, I, I, one thing that I just wanted to raise was last week we were speaking about Theresa May and how her position looked completely untenable and that something big was going to happen. And then this deal just got completely fudged, and now that seems to have just gone again. Yeah, has, and I has think, it gone again? I, th- I think it probably has for now. Um, there's, again, there's no one else lined up. I know there's some talk about you know David Davis's team coming along to to decapitate Theresa May and take over, but I don't think he has any credibility with the party, uh, party more generally, mm. certainly, to do that. No, so I think she's safe for now. But I think the problem is it's a for now. Yeah, it's it's that thing because people, you know, lots of people are taking lots of comfort from phase one. Um, but it, as I said it's mostly a political fudge. The, the, the financial deal was always going to end up where it where it was. Citizens' rights, fuck good. We finally got there, and we and we agree. But the big difficult stuff still hasn't been answered. So, yeah. well, the, the Brexiteer wing of the Tory Party is public enemy num- uh, uh, num- number one. I mean, you could look at Gove and say he's slightly been rehabilitated because he says nice things about plastic. But generally speaking, they are public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Theresa May hangs on purely because Jeremy Corbyn is her biggest ally and her biggest asset. And it will go to the next, to the next election, and if Labour haven't got a different candidate, I, I imagine that everything will be pretty much the status quo. Yeah, I, th- I think we'll... I mean, there's still a lot going to happen yet. Um, a, we've got to get the transition deal through. Uh, and I said there's some, there's some legal challenges, never mind political challenges, to doing that. Um, if clarity is that we're going to start seeing, we, we've already seen, you know, some companies are already relocating. We are going to start seeing a lot more of those in the first quarter of next year. This stuff might start to 
might start to change opinion. You know, at some point, one of the big guys will do a big move of supply chain relocation or something like that, and that might. You know, it's all. You can imagine. It's very hard to predict how exactly how the public will respond to like that. Like a, a Nissan Sunland or something. Yeah, so I can't see any of the big guys in the, in that sort of scale relocating the entire plants because there's massive capital sunk. So you yeah. you would exhaust the capital before before anything else, and you know the customs issues are clearly going to be a 2021 problem rather than a 2019. We we assume. Uh, at the moment, but I, I do wonder, and it is when, it's not if, when the first big, high-profile kind of shift happens. Because at the moment, they're mostly being battered away because they're relatively small fry. It's companies just spinning up subsidiaries, moving 100 staff. You know, you can sort of get away with that. But if there's a big employer in a town which takes a hit, yeah, then you know, who knows? You know, we, we've seen, you know, you see around the, the financial crisis, around some of the euro crisis... It's very hard to work out how public reaction goes with these things. Sometimes it swallows it and doesn't blink. Sometimes it's a huge uprising, and you can never really predict. Right, we will actually leave it there. Um, before we do, uh, any chamber news? Um, our quarterly economic breakfast on Friday. I'm currently working on all of our forecasts and updated status of the GM economy. Uh, that's the big thing. And then actually, I finish for Christmas. So for me, it's all eyes on Friday afternoon. Oh, excellent. Oh, so no podcast next Well, next, next well you, you could do a podcast, but you haven't got me. <laughs> uh, excellent. And where can we find you, gents, on social media? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. And if you'd ever be interested, at Jay Beardmore. So uh, until not next week, but maybe the week after that, um, enjoy Brexit. Uh, Merry Brexit, everyone. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.